as we open up our Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 20, we're going to begin this evening at about verse 12, because in our previous study, we really considered the first part of this whole story. And in the first part of the story, it's really a horrific account. And when I say horrific, I mean horrific. Let let, let me tell you what happened in the first part, and I'll, I'll just sketch it out. In the barest outlines, there was a man named as a Levite, an unnamed man, who had a concubine, and through some terrible circumstances, the woman was terribly abused and violated and murdered. Well, very late to his consideration, the Levite was outraged by this terrible crime that had been committed in Israel. And so he, and I I can't even believe I'm saying this, but it's what the Bible says. He dismembered his concubine and sent her body parts all around to the different elders of the tribes of Israel and called them to do something about the people of Gibeah who had committed this terrible crime. There was a city in Israel that was as wicked as Sodom and Gomorrah. And Sodom and Gomorrah deserved, rightfully deserved, the judgment of God. Otherwise, God would not have judged them so. And so the Levite, in his outrage, made it public all around Israel, this city, Gibeah, in our midst, is just as wicked as they were in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Something should be done about this. Now we come to verse 12 of Judges chapter 20. Then the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin, saying... What is this wickedness? Now, by the way, Gibeah was in the territory of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, so remember that. Gibeah is the city. Benjamin is the tribe. I'll start again. Then the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that has occurred among you? Now, therefore, deliver up the men, the perverted men who are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove the evil from Israel. But the children of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. Instead, the children of Benjamin gathered together from their cities to Gibeah to go to battle against the children of Israel. And from their cities at that time, the children of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who numbered 700 select men. Among all these people were 700 select men who were left-handed, and everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. Now, besides Benjamin, all the men of Israel numbered 400,000 men who drew the sword, and all of these were men of war. So do you see what's going on here? In their outrage, the elders of the other tribes of Israel confront the tribe of Benjamin, and they say, hey, tribe of Benjamin... You have a very wicked city in your midst. You you have men who should be punished for the grotesque wickedness which they inflicted upon this Levite and particularly upon his concubine. There's a woman violated and murdered. What will you do about it? And the response from the tribe of Benjamin is, we're not going to do anything about it. As a matter of fact, if you try to do something about it, We'll battle against you. We'll fight against you in war. You see, very rationally, very reasonably... The people of Israel, the tribes of Israel, asked the men of Benjamin to take care of it themselves. But yet, they sought to resolve the crisis without a war. But the tribe of Benjamin committed a great sin. They put their loyalty to their tribe 
before their obedience to God's law. Now let me tell you something. Many modern followers of God make the same mistake. When they put the interests of their own denomination or their own nation before the interests of the kingdom of God. It's very important for us as Christians to realize that we are citizens of heaven. That we are part of the body of Christ as a whole. And what's most important to us is the advancement of the kingdom of God even more than it is uh, the advancement of a particular denomination or even national entity. So, the tribes of Israel gathered, the warriors of the tribe of Benjamin gathered. If you notice, verse seven, or 16 mentions 700 select men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss You see, the tribe of Benjamin not only failed to uh, further the cause of righteousness in their own tribes, yet they actively resisted it and assembled an army that just said, not only are we refusing to do what's right, we're going to fight anybody else who tries to do what's right. By the way, there's something very interesting in verse 16. Would you look at it with me? You see that phrase in verse 16? Everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. Let me tell you something very interesting about that word miss. It's the same word that's translated in other passages of the Old Testament as sin. To sin, at least one of the biblical words that defines it so, to sin is to miss the mark. Isn't that a great definition of sin? To miss the mark. Friends, by the way, If you miss the mark, it doesn't really matter if you miss it by an inch or you miss it by a mile. You've missed the mark. And that's what sin is. God has a mark, or at least that's one of the definitions. Sin is like an ugly diamond with many facets, right? And there's many different angles to what sin is. But one of the ways we can understand sin is to understand it as missing the mark. God has this mark. You've missed it. I've missed it. We're all sinners before God. But if you'll notice in verse 17, it also describes that besides Benjamin, the men of Israel numbered 400,000 men. So they prepared for this small civil war, right? On the one side was the tribe of Benjamin. On the other side were the other tribes of Israel. I want you to notice something. Israel was right in not believing that their greatest good here was unity. If unity was the greatest good, then the tribes of Israel would have said, well, let's just forget it, right? But listen, this is what they understood. They understood that unity apart from justice and unity apart from truth, that's not worth having. Unity is important. It's a good value. But sometimes there must be divisions made over these essential things. So how does the battle against Benjamin and Gibeah go? Verse 18. Then the children of Israel rose and went up to the house of God to inquire of God. By the way, should I just stop right there? That's a very good thing, isn't it? Right? They, They want to seek the Lord. When we just read verse 18, just that first sentence there of verse 18, our attitude is, hooray, they're going to be successful, right? Because when you seek the Lord, everything goes great. Everything goes smooth. Everything goes easy. It's not always the case, is it? Let's start again. Verse 18. Then the children of Israel arose and went up to the house of God to inquire of God. They said, 
Which of us shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? The Lord said, Judah first. So the children of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin. And the men of Israel put themselves in battle array to fight against them at Gibeah. Then the children of Benjamin came out of Gibeah. And on that day cut down to the ground 22,000 men of the Israelites. Do you understand what happened? The the 11 tribes get together, or let's say 10 tribes, because the tribe of Levi wouldn't have been fighting. They were priestly tribes. The 10 tribes against this one tribe gather together. Okay, we're going to get those Benjamites. We far outnumber them. We have a massive numerical superiority. We're going to get them. And so they sought the Lord. They were ready to go. They fought the battle. And what happened? Verse 21 tells us that 22,000 men of the Israelites died in a staggering, severe loss in the first battle of this small civil war. After the first day of the fighting, it looked as if that one little tribe of Benjamin might be greater than all the other ten tribes put together. Now, you might say, maybe there was something wrong in the way that Israel sought the Lord. But you know what I would think, more be inclined to think? That there was nothing wrong in the way that Israel sought the Lord. Rather, this was simply part of God's plan to correct his disobedient nation. Look, haven't we seen this? That throughout the period of Judges, and by the way, from every indication, this particular incident took place fairly early in the time of the Judges. But throughout the time of the Judges, it was a time where the children of Israel often sinned and rebelled against God, often turned their back on their covenant God. They did it again and again. And friends, when a people do that again and again, they invite the discipline of God. And this is what was happening with Israel. I believe that God allowed these staggering losses in this small civil war between the ten tribes and Benjamin to discipline, to to chastise the people of Israel. You know, I find a parallel to that in American history, if I can say. The American president, Abraham Lincoln, in his second inaugural address, spoke on this very theme in relation to the Civil War. This is what he said about the American Civil War. I'll read it to you here. He said, Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, And until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid with another drawn by the sword. As it was said 3,000 years ago, so still must it be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous together. By the way, just from this fact, can you conceive of an American president quoting the scripture that way? (laughs) But secondly, do you understand what he's saying? Do you understand what he's saying about the massive loss of human life, the almost unbelievable carnage that took place in the American Civil War between the North and the South? He's looking at it and he says, in some measure, 
This was a judgment that we deserved as a nation because we allowed this horror of slavery to go on. And this is our way of paying, uh, of paying for this sin, at least in a cultural or in a societal sense. Now, friends, I don't believe that they paid for the sin in the sense of atoning for it before God. But I just mean in the way that God deals with nations, the way that God deals with cultures for their sin. Well, could it very well not be the same principle at work in ancient Israel? We scratch our heads and we say, why? Why, when the ten tribes of Israel were coming against the tribe of Benjamin and they were on a righteous cause, do we not agree that they were on a righteous cause? Why should they suffer such severe losses? Because God had a judgment, a discipline to bring upon even his disobedient people. Friends, let me just pause here. Pause before I go on to verse 22. Our sin is paid for by the work of Jesus on the cross. I believe that with all of my heart, with all of my mind. I believe that Jesus paid it all. Every last bit of it on the cross. I believe that you cannot pay for your own sins. I believe that there are some Christians who sort of punish themselves or allow themselves to be miserable or punished or something because in some vain dream they think they can atone through for their own sin by their misery. You can't pay for your own sin. Jesus paid it all. Nevertheless, not in the sense of atonement, but in the sense of loving, discipline, and correction Sometimes there is a penalty that we have to pay for our sins. Not to atone for them. No, that was paid at the cross. But again, in the sense of discipline and correction that we need and we deserve from our sin. And so this is what I want to challenge you with right now before moving on to verse 22. Are you inviting the discipline of God in your life right now? Are you inviting God to... I hope you understand what I mean by this phrase, to spiritually spank you, to to spank you with, with something in your life, not to make you pay for your sin, but to teach you, to correct you. Friends, how much better it is for us to learn wisdom from the living God and to obey him in the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit so that we do not invite, invite his hand of correction. Verse 22. And the people, that is, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and again formed the battle line at the place where they had put themselves in array on the first day. Then the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and asked counsel of the Lord, saying, Shall I again draw near for battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against him. Now look, we read verses 22 and 23. And if you stop right there, can anybody say anything bad about what Israel's done right there? They sought the Lord. They wept before him. They encouraged themselves. They formed a battle line. I love that thing. The men of Israel encouraged themselves and again formed the battle line. That's a wonderful reaction. You know what I love about Israel right here at this place? They kept on fighting. And if there's anything I can encourage you with in the Christian life tonight, it's just as the grace of God gives you strength, determine that you will keep on fighting. But what distresses me so much It's when I see a Christian who seems trapped in some kind of sin. It's when they wave the right flag of surrender. 
They just say, well, okay, this is my sin. I'll stop fighting against it. We all have sins, don't we? This one will just be mine, or this dozen will just be mine, or whatever you want to say. They just wave that white flag of surrender, and they don't keep on fighting. Friends, determine it now by the grace of God empowering you that no matter how many times you stumble, you will not fall away. You might trip down and skin your knees, but you won't fall away. Because God helping you, you're going to keep on fighting. And God bless Israel for doing just that here in verses 22 and 23. It says, verse 23, they went up again and they wept before the Lord until evening. They didn't stop seeking the Lord after that first disaster in battle. They properly humbled themselves before God. They sought him before the next battle. They kept on seeking the Lord. And it all looks good. Look, wouldn't you almost expect to read in verse 24, and everything went great, and they conquered the tribe of Benjamin, and everything was set right. Let me just say, God was not done disciplining Israel. Isn't that just the character of the way that discipline works in the life of a child or in the life of a child of God? Discipline works like this. The one enduring the discipline, the child, right, whether it be a child in your family or the child of God, the one enduring the discipline always thinks that it should end sooner than the one administering the discipline, right? (laughs) To, To use an analogy, and I'm just using this analogy, that the child gets a couple swats and he goes, okay, that's it, good, I've learned my lesson, right? Where the the parent administering the discipline, I would assume it's being administered properly and lovingly and all the rest of it. They says, well, two isn't enough. I'm going to give you two more, three more, whatever the amount would be. You get the point here. Israel probably had every reason to think, okay, it's finished now. Now is victory. But look at verse 24. So the children of Israel approached the children of Benjamin on the second day, and Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah on the second day and cut down to the ground 18,000 more of the children of Israel. All these drew the sword. Wow. What was the losses on the first day? 22,000. Am I remembering that right? The losses on the second day, 18,000. And you've got a total of 40,000 lost in battle. Listen, this told them that this would not be an easy war. It would not be a quick war. But the children of Israel were willing to keep on fighting. The, the, the Lord, even though they, the, the, I should say the children of Israel, even though they were fighting in a just cause, it was still going to be a very difficult struggle. And if I could make this by spiritual analogy. Friends, I tell you this, and I, I just want to tell you it with all the compassion that I have in Jesus Christ. There are going to be some difficult struggles in your life. There will. I know there are in my life. And, you know, my heart goes out to some of you because my heart goes out to those of you to whom you were introduced to Christianity under fraudulent uh, promises. Some of you might have been introduced to Christianity uh, under this sort of promise. And maybe the evangelist didn't say it exactly like this, but this was sort of the impression you got. Come to, Christ, come to Jesus Christ and all your problems will go away. Come to Jesus and you're just on the, 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 the primrose road. I want to see the yellow brick road because even on the yellow brick road, Dorothy and the rest of them had a lot of trouble, didn't they? I'm just saying you get on the, it's, it's difficult. And you're confronted by that, aren't you? Listen. I can't believe I'm, I'm talking like this because this isn't how you know, we preachers, we're supposed to be always really positive and real encouraging. And I, 
I, I want to encourage you with this, with this really bummer statement. <laughs> Suffering is part of the Christian life. Now, can we thank Jesus here this evening that is only part? And for you, if suffering is the entirety of your Christian life, there's something very wrong with that. But seasons of suffering are part of the Christian experience. There is a such thing, as Paul described, the fellowship of his sufferings. And there are certain aspects to our relationship and our fellowship with God that we only know in full measure and greatest intimacy when we suffer right along with him. Now, again, I want to lay stress on this. It is part of the Christian life. It is not the entire experience. And just as much as you have some Christians who are under the delusion that everything in the Christian life should be fun and easy and and happy all the time, so you don't you have other Christians who are under the delusion that should all be depression and and being morose and just being downcast all the time. No, I thank God for for both the times of, of wonderful joy, which I have to say in my Christian experience are the majority. Aren't they in yours? Yet when God appoints for me some season of suffering, God helping me, and I can only do this God helping me, I embrace it and I say, Lord, you have a purpose in this. Draw me close to you in the fellowship of your sufferings. After 40,000 men lost on the field of battle, Israel was enduring a season of suffering. Verse 26 Then all the children of Israel, that is, all the people, went up and came to the house of God and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So the children of Israel inquired of the Lord. The ark of the covenant of God was there in those days, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days, saying, Shall I yet go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. God allowed these two days of defeat to bring Israel low. They needed to be humbled. And those days of defeat completely drained out of them the pride and the self-sufficiency. And they were back to the place where they could be truly humble and broken before God. God used the tragic loss, and it's nothing more to be described than a tragic loss, a devastating loss of 40,000 men on the field of battle. He used it to humble the whole nation. They had to understand that the horror of the crime at Gibeah was not merely the result of a few bad men or one bad city or even one erring tribe. The whole nation had to be humbled because they thought that the sin problem was only in Gibeah, or the sin problem was only in Benjamin. Friends, the sin problem was all over Israel. Friends, after the first battle and the debacle there, losing 22,000 men, Israel was sorry and they wept. But it was only after the loss on the second day that they put their repentance into action by fasting and by making a sacrifice for sins. Let me tell you something. Sorrow and weeping apart from sacrifice for sins are not enough. Do you sorrow over your sins? Great. Do you weep over your sins? Wonderful. It's not enough. You got to take your sins to the cross. 
This is God's appointed place for sacrifice. Can I tell you, friends, you cannot atone for your own sins by your tears. I'm delighted if you're sorry over your sin. It's much better for you to be sorry over your sin than happy about it. But your sins are not atoned for by your own bad feelings or even your own tears. Your sins are atoned for by what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so this is what Israel had to endure. But they had the promise from God. Verse 28, go up for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. God did not want the two days of humbling to make Israel think that they could never win. Brother, sister, are you in a season of humbling right now? Don't despair. God will raise you up. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Don't worry about it. He'll raise you up at the appropriate time. Don't become filled with despair. The devil's there to whisper in your ear. You'll never get on top of this. You'll never come out of this season of humbling. That's a lie from the devil. God may humble you. He may humble me for a season. But he'll bring us out. And this is his promise to Israel that they would do so. All right, let's read a long section now, starting at verse 29. Then Israel set men in ambush all around Gibeah. And the children of Israel went up against the children of Benjamin on the third day and put themselves in battle array against Gibeah as at other times. So the children of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. They began to strike down and kill some of the people as at other times. In the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and in the field about 30 men of Israel. And the children of Benjamin said, they are defeated before us as at first. But the children of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. So all the men of Israel rose from their place and put themselves in battle rail at Baal Tamar. Then Israel's men in ambush burst forth from their positions in the plain of Geba. And 10,000 select men from all Israel came against Gibeah and the battle was fierce. But the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the children of Israel destroyed that day 25,100 Benjaminites. All these drew the sword. So the children of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel had given ground to the Benjaminites because they relied on the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. And the men in ambush quickly rushed upon Gibeah. The men in ambush spread out and struck the whole city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise up from the city, whereupon the men of Israel would turn and battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 of the men of Israel, for they said, Surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the cloud began to rise from the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them, and there was the whole city going up in smoke to heaven. And when the men of Israel turned back, the men of Benjamin panicked, for they saw that disaster had come upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them, and whoever came out of the cities they destroyed in their midst. They surrounded the Benjaminites, chased them, and easily trampled them down as far as the front of Gibeah towards the east. And 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All these were men of valor. Then they turned and fled toward the wilderness of the rock of Ramon. And they cut down 5,000 of them on the highways. Then they pursued them relentlessly up to Giddim and killed 22,000 of them. So all who fell of Benjamin that day were 25,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of valor. 
But 600 men turned and fled towards the wilderness of the Rock of Ramon, and they stayed at the Rock of Ramon for four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them down with the edge of the sword from every city, men and beasts, all who were found. Then they set fire to the cities that they came to. Terrible, but clear enough, right? I don't know who exactly wrote the book of Judges. Somebody did under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But they sure liked describing this battle scene, didn't they? And so they used a strategy similar to what the strategy was that Joshua used at the battle of Ai. Maybe they got this strategy by reading the writings of Joshua and Moses. In any regard, verse 35 tells us that the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And these 600 men from Benjamin turned away. They got away, but yet Israel turned back. Verse 48, did you see that? Against the children of Benjamin, they struck them down with the sword from every city, men and beasts, all who were found. Do you understand what happened? You see, this was an unwarranted war of retribution against Benjamin. You see, they started out with a good intent, right? To punish Gibeah for their crime. But because of the fierce resistance that they faced from Benjamin, when Israel got the upper hand, they took an excessive vengeance against Benjamin. You see, the tribe of Benjamin was undeniably guilty, but there was no need for the complete slaughter that's described here. This too severe judgment against the tribe of Benjamin would soon be regretted by Israel, and that takes up chapter 21. I like what G. Campbell Morgan said about this. He said, quote, Uninstructed zeal, even in the cause of righteousness, often goes beyond its proper limits. And that's exactly what happened. Now, chapter 21, verse 1. Now the men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mizpah, saying, None of us shall give his daughters to Benjamin as a wife. Now considering their anger against Benjamin, that probably seemed to them to be the right thing to do. But friends, can I tell you, this was a foolish oath. Nobody in Israel will give their daughters as wives to people from the tribe of Benjamin. And if you do, there's a curse upon you. Friends, that was a foolish oath, and it had unforeseen consequences. Now, justice and proper judgment does two things. It brings consequences against evildoers, right? But not excessively. And this was getting into the realm of excessive judgment. Verse 2, look at they understand this. Then the people came to the house of God and remained there before God till evening. They lifted up their voices and wept bitterly and said, O Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel that today there should be one tribe missing in Israel? Do you see this in verse 3? They cried out to God almost as if it was his responsibility that the tribe of Benjamin was almost on the edge of extinction. I can almost imagine God in heaven. They cry out, why has it come to pass that there's all we've almost lost a tribe in Israel? And God says, because you murdered them all. <laughs> Hello? You, you did this. You carried out an excessive justice. You carried out a, a too extreme judgment against them. They were the problem. And if they didn't do something, there would be one tribe missing because they were down to almost 400 men. And those men were unable to marry 
because of the curse that was pronounced in the first verse of this chapter. The tribe of Benjamin was almost extinct. Let me just put it this way. If you've got 400 men and they can't marry, you're not going to have many descendants, right? It's just going to be over pretty soon. Israel realizes, oh God, what have we done? Now, can I just say, this has something to teach us under the general principle, two wrongs don't make a right. Well, we'll go on here. Verse 4. So it was on the next morning that the people rose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. The children of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel that did not come up with us at the assembly of the Lord? For they made a great oath concerning anyone who had not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the children of Israel grieved for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives of those who remain, seeing we've sworn by the Lord that we will not give them our daughters as wives? And they said, What one is there from the tribes of Israel who did not come up from Mizpah to the Lord? And in fact, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were counted, indeed, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent out their 12,000 of their most valiant men and commanded them, saying, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, including the women and children. And this is the thing you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every male and every woman who has known a man intimately. So they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man intimately. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the camp land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the children of Benjamin who were at the rock of Ramon and announced peace to them. So Benjamin came back at that time and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead, for they had not found enough for them. And the people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. Okay, if you understand this, you might just be tearing your hair out at this time. What is going on here? Okay, we're so sad. What are we going to do for the tribe of Benjamin? We pronounced a curse on, on anybody who gives their daughter to marry them. How are we going to do this? How are these men of, of, of Benjamin ever going to populate again and replenish the tribe? I know. Was there any city in our midst that didn't send people to fight against Benjamin and the tribe in the city of Gibeah? Oh, yeah, Jabesh Gilead on the other side of the Jordan. Good. Let's go have a massacre and wipe out the whole city and just take the whim, young women who had never been married. What are you talking about? Friends, we're not talking about two wrongs not making a right. Now we're talking about four or five wrongs not making a right. Here is what we see. When people try to do the right thing without really walking with the Lord. They stumble. They fall. This was doing one bad thing in a vain attempt to make up for another. You know what they should have done? I'll tell you exactly what they should have done. They should have stood up and said, Lord, we made a foolish oath at Mizpah when we pronounced a curse upon anybody who gave their wife to, to marry somebody. Lord, we repent of that foolish oath and we retract it before you. That's what they should have done. They should have repented of their foolish oath. Friends, have you ever made a foolish oath before God? They made a foolish oath that was so foolish that it led them to commit mass murder just to observe their foolish oath. 
It would have been infinitely better for them to renounce their oath, repent of it, and just simply do the right thing by supplying wives to Benjamin. Instead, they massacre a whole city and kidnap 400 young women who are now left without their families all together. And they say, now you guys are going to be, you girls, I should say, are going to be the new wives for the tribe of Benjamin. And so in this ungodly massacre, they killed everybody but 400 young virgins. And still that wasn't enough. They didn't find enough for them. So how are they going to do it? Verse 16. It gets even weirder. I don't know how to say it. It just gets weirder. Verse 16. Then the elders of the congregation said, What should we do for wives for those who remain since the women of Benjamin have been destroyed? And they said, There must be inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe may not be destroyed from Israel. However, we cannot give them wives from our daughters... For the children of Israel have sworn an oath, saying, Cursed be the one who gives a wife to Benjamin. Then they said, In fact, there's a yearly feast of the Lord in Shiloh, which is north of Bethel on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Labona. Therefore, they instructed the children of Benjamin, saying, Go lie and wait in the vineyards and watch. And just when the daughters of Shiloh come out to perform their dances and come out from the vineyards, And every man catch a wife for himself from the daughters of Shiloh, then go to the land of the Benjamites. I'm not making this up. (laughs) And it shall be when their fathers or brothers come to us to complain that we will say to them, be kind to them for our sakes, because we did not take a wife for any of them in the war. For it is not as though you have given the women to them at this time, making yourselves guilty of your oath. And the children of Benjamin did this. They took enough wives for the number of those who danced, whom they caught And they went and returned to their inheritance, and they rebuilt their cities and dwelt in them. So the children of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. Just when you think it's gotten as crazy it could get in the days of the judges, now there's a planned abduction of women to supply wives for those in the tribe of Benjamin who still didn't have them. They created a little drama where the Benjaminites were allowed to kidnap women who may have very well been willing, I don't know, so that the marriage could be arranged without official approval. And instead of going through this charade, they simply should have confessed their sin of making a foolish oath and doing the right thing instead of trying to make two wrongs equal a right. But I have to say, this section of Scripture brings me to a topic that has interested me in the past. I used to teach on it, oh, every two or three semesters to the students at our Bible college. It brings me to the topic of strange yet biblical ways of finding a wife. (laughs) Now, I mean this as a great assistance to people here this evening. I know that there's many men here. Well, I don't know about many, but there's men here. You want to get married. Don't you want to know what the Bible says about finding a wife? Well, there are some strange ways in the Bible to get a wife, and so I'm just giving you the Bible here this evening, okay? Ready? Are you ready? This is my list of strange but biblical ways to find a wife. Number one, have surgery to extract a rib and then have God make a woman out of the rib, then marry her. Right? That's biblical, isn't it? So just do that. That's number one. Number two, send a guy to find a wife for you, and when he finds someone to carry water for his camels... He'll give the girl two bracelets and a nose ring. Then she'll come home with him and marry you. (laughs) Guys, have you tried that? Really? (laughs) Number three, choose a woman to marry and then impress her by rolling a stone from the opening of a well. Then work for her dad for seven years. Then marry her sister and one week later marry the girl. Then work for the dad for another seven years. 
It could work. Number four, go to war and choose a woman from the people you're fighting against. Take her home, shave her head bald, trim her nails, and give her new clothes and wait a month. If you still want to marry her, do it. It's right there in Deuteronomy chapter 21. I can't understand all this business with, you know, uh, online dating and matching sites. Just do what the Bible says. Well, here's the one from Judges chapter 21. Hide out in a vineyard, and when women come out to dance, grab a woman to be your wife. Number six. Well, a little rough. Choose a woman to marry, then go kill 200 uncircumcised men and cut off their foreskins, then bring the foreskins to the girl dad and marry the girl. That's what King David did. Number seven. David also did this one. He had more than one wife. Find a guy who's a real jerk and whose wife saves him from all kinds of trouble. When he dies of a heart attack, marry his wife. Number eight. Choose a woman and marry her. Repeat. Repeat again until you have 700 wives and 300 concubines. I'm just saying it's in the Bible. And then a final bad one, too. Number nine, marry a prostitute. Have kids with her while she continues to work as a prostitute and have kids by other men. Give her gifts and stay faithful to the marriage. Isn't that exactly what God called Hosea to do? Well, look, I, I say it in jest, of course. But it is a reflection on the craziness of the time of the judges, is it not? And the craziness is summarized in verse 25. Let's look at it together. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You know, I think is so fascinating about that last line. Which, which so properly summarizes the whole tenor of the book of Judges is it tells us that when there is no king, when there is no governing authority in your life or in the life of others around you, when you simply do what is right in your own eyes, that it results in this kind of societal chaos. Now, friends, it doesn't all happen at once. But it happens. All I can say is for the last, what, 30, 40 years, Hasn't this been the predominant way of thinking in the United States? There is no God ruling over the individual. Everybody just does what's right in their own eyes. That's it. Whatever you want to do, just do it. You shouldn't have any boundaries. You should just do what you want to do in life. There's no governing authority. Do what you want to do. Now, people look around and say, but listen, David, society, culture isn't so bad. You're right. It isn't so bad today. That's because we're living on the inheritance of several hundred years of Christian influence when people lived with the idea that there was a God in heaven who cared about how we live, and each one of us would have to answer to him. And what we've been doing is we've been undermining that foundation furiously in the last decades. When you undermine a foundation, eventually it collapses. Friends, the societal trend for our culture in the larger sense, it looks just like that. There was no king in Israel. This kind of moral 
political, social, and spiritual chaos can only happen when there's no recognized king over Israel, when people forget about God as their king. And everybody just does what's right in their own eyes. The 400-year period of the judges was marked by this radical individualism. They rejected the standards of God and his word, and they accepted the individual standard of I'll just do what's right in my own eyes. And what you have is the same kind of societal and cultural mess. Well, look, if you're concerned about it, pray. If you're concerned about it, Bring other people to a relationship with Jesus Christ. But if you're really concerned about it, make sure that Jesus Christ is your king. That King Jesus reigns over you. And and, and I don't blame anybody tonight for feeling, I don't measure up to that. I miss. I sin. All too often, I simply do what's right in my own eyes, and I don't yield to the Lord. Maybe that's you here tonight. Can I tell you, Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for that sin in your life. Won't you confess it and repent it before him and receive the forgiveness and acknowledge Jesus as your king? It would be very fruitful. Well, I shouldn't say fruitful. It wouldn't be fruitful. It would be very, very fun for us tonight to just talk about how everybody else in the culture is such terrible sinners. What about us? What about our life before the Lord? Yeah, that's, that's what God wants to touch. So I ask you right now, as we worship, as we open up the tables for communion, on my right and on my left, here tables open for communion here. Come forward as we worship. Receive the body. Receive the blood of Jesus Christ that's there in those bowls with the grape juice that we have there. Receive it this evening as forgiveness of your sins. But when you do it, do it as if it's an act of homage to your king. Maybe you want to whisper it under your own breath as you receive that piece of bread and receive that juice. I honor you, King Jesus Please forgive my sins. Father, that's what we want to do. We want to acknowledge you as king. Not only over this congregation, Jesus, but over our individual lives. We don't want to spend the rest of our days doing only what is right in our own eyes. Lord, you helping us, you empowering us, We will do what is right in your eyes. And we're bold enough to pray, God, that you would transform our society. That you would send, Lord, I I don't know what exactly to call it, renewal, revival, awakening. Lord, I, I don't care so much about naming it. I just plead with you to send it. Help us to rebuild foundations that have been undermined. For your glory, Lord Jesus, we pray this. Amen.